gathering us together together today. We thank you for coming to bring us to hear your word once again. Lord, we pray that you would enlighten our eyes and that the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Please bless my words in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So, um, thank you, Dick, for finishing the reading, uh, even though it's Ellie Melek. <laughs> so, no, thank you. So, last week we uh, we examined um, we examined the question, the great philosophical question, "What is the good life?" And before we actually examined it properly, we took and looked at the two hidden assumptions in it. That number one, that the good life is not necessarily obvious. And number two, that, uh, that it presumes that we have life to begin with. And so this week, um, we will look at more properly, more directly the question. But if we remember from last week, Naomi lived by sight, so she did not see the good life. It was indeed not obvious to her, and Ruth lived by faith. And last week we also discussed that the historian, the, that Ruth being a historical narrative, the historian actually wants us to ask questions of the text. He seeks um, to have us look at the text and ask what we are to learn from Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And consistent with this, I, I actually ran across, across a quote from um, Wittgenstein, the philosopher. And he, he, the quote is a little obscure, but I'll unpack it. He says, ethics, so far as it springs from desire to say something about ultimate meaning of life, the absolute good, the absolute value, there can be no science. And what he means by this, as Erwin Kegi, where I ran across the quote, says is that there are some things in life that can't be learned through learned tractatuses. It can't be learned through complex mathematical formulas. It has to be shown and felt and seen. And so what the author is giving us today, the historian is giving us today, is, in fact, a picture of a life that is worth living, you know, th that would be the good life. And so now that we have this groundwork, groundwork laid, we can uh, jump in to Boaz, and now examining Boaz, now that we've already looked at Naomi, and that we've already looked at Ruth, we can now take a closer look at Boaz. And as last week, I emphasized that the book of Ruth invites us to look, to read the book of Ruth together with Judges, if you will, in light of Judges, and to compare and contrast of what we find in Judges versus what we find in the book of Ruth. And so this comparison, this contrasting that we can do with the book leads us to questions, and I would even say that one of the questions you would ask, you could ask, that the author actually invites us to ask, is what life 
would you prefer to live? Would you prefer a life that the judges gives us? Which if, if you haven't read the judges in a while, it gives us some of the most horrific scenes in the entire Hebrew Bible, if not some of the most horrific scenes that in the entire Bible. Or do you want to live the life that we find in the people that we find in the book of Ruth? And so the, the invitation is saying that, these, that they lived during the times of the judges or when the judges judged, as the Hebrew would say, it is um, inviting us to ask these questions. And many author, or the, uh, one, of, one scholar I ran across, I thought appropriately summarized the book of Ruth well. He called it a book of unceasing kindness. And indeed, when we come to Boaz, that's, that's what we see. So let us actually jump into the text. So let us turn to verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessel and drink of what the young men have drawn. So Boaz here does something that's actually rather striking. When, when you read the book of Ruth closely, you see that Ruth has different designators, and she's often called Ruth the Moabite, or Ruth the Moabitess. And one of the things that is actually very striking, just in this opening section of, of Boaz addressing Ruth, is that Boaz actually calls Ruth my daughter. This is a term of affection. We can see this term used with Naomi and Ruth. Naomi calls Ruth my daughter. But Boaz calls Ruth my daughter. And we might think this is a nice pleasantry, and perhaps it is, if it would be, if the other actions didn't follow. I remember my first time of visiting the South, and I did not know what to expect. I've grown up on the West Coast my whole life, and I had been to New York City, so I had been to the East Coast, and, but I had never been to the South properly. And I remember hearing the term, bless your heart. And I thought, wow, these people are very godly until I realized that was actually an insult. And so it actually matters the words that follow. And what we see in Boaz's words, the words that follow, are ones of, indeed, unceasing kindness. He is keen to protect Ruth from, from danger, from both physical harassment for her being a foreigner, or even perhaps sexual harassment, sexual assault, of her being a vulnerable woman without a protector. He cares for Ruth. And we see this in the not gleaning from other fields and commanding young men not to touch her. But also, we see that he, he 
cares for her. He raises her status. She's not just going to be someone that's gleaning, but he's moving her up to the women who are actually doing the harvest. And we know this because in the next text, or in the next few verses, this will become clear. There's also a very interesting thing, and I see that the scriptures do this often if you're looking for it. Uh, One of the things that I find utterly fascinating is he says, and when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink and what the young men have drawn. This actually, in one way, in a very curious way, breaks a lot of the expectations that you would have from, indeed, the ancient Near East and and generally in the Bible. We think about um, who draws the water. It's typically women. Rebecca draws the water for the camels. We think about the woman at the well coming in the middle of the day in John to draw water. And, and we know that this is, was a typical practice. But in this case, it is not the woman who draws the water, it's the men. And Bo- Ruth actually is invited to take part in the water they draw. And so, so we see that Ruth is actually being treated in a, in a very unparalleled fashion in many senses. And we get confirmation of this generosity because for us, this does not seem like a big deal. If one of the ladies in this room asked me to get water, I'd say, okay, sure, and bring it on. But in this culture, this is totally shocking. You know, you're reading this as an ancient Israelite, and you're saying, well, what's going on here? And, and so we get this confirmation. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So, one of the aspects of this We may think falling down and bowing to be rather dramatic, or we may chalk this up as just being an ancient Near Eastern, an ancient Israelite custom of just falling down. And perhaps it is, but it is still one that, that shows one of extreme deference and of gratitude for what um, it, what Ruth is doing, or what, what, what Boaz is giving to Ruth. However, I suspect that there is more behind this, and I suspect this just for a very basic reason, is that there have been times that I have been met, I've been so humbled and met with such kindness and in such need that when I've been met in my need with an unexpected kindness, I've done similar actions. Now, I've never fell down on the ground and bowed 
but there's ways of showing honor to people that show that you are thankful and that you are needy and you have received kindness. And the, even the question is very striking. Why have I found favor in your sight? For I'm a foreigner. Why? Foreigner. Ruth is shocked because she is not royalty. She is not someone of high standing. She has nothing to offer Boaz. She is not any, uh, anyone of importance. She is not married to one of the elders of the city. She's not even married at all. She's no one. Yet Boaz sees her, and she is seen by him. And Boaz takes care of her, who's the least among them in Israel. And for Boaz, this is not a mere check-the-box charity activity. Oh, I did my volunteer time. You know, I helped a needy Moabitess, and um, I'm off to do some work now. No, he actually knows about her life. It's been told to him. He knows about her sacrifice and is deeply moved by it. And he prays for God's blessing upon her. And it, it, it's a tragedy in our era that when something happens and we pray, we say that we will pray for them, people shrug it off because they do not actually believe that there's a God who answers prayer. And so um, I, you, any time, tragically, when there's a shooting or something, and people say our thoughts and prayers are with you, um, there's actually been some very nasty commentary written about that. In one way, I, I understand why that is, partly because um, I, I don't know how much people mean it, but the other part is people writing the nasty commentary actually don't believe that there is a God who answers prayer. But in this case, Boaz knows that there is a God that will bless Ruth, who will recognize Ruth, and he seeks to bless her. He seeks God's blessing upon her, rather. And this is, and the last key of how we know what Boaz is doing is significant is actually found in verse 13. She says, You have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. He has, in essence, elevated Ruth to being a part of the people that actually work for him, not just somebody that's being there for charity, someone that's just gleaning, but is actually... A, uh, important part of his operation. He's treating her like she matters. And so, at this point, Boaz could have called it a day again. She's already expressed her gratitude. She's already thankful. He's, she, he's already done well beyond what any expectation she had. But as we continue in verse 14, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her roasted grain, and she ate, and she was satisfied, and she had some left over. 
This is also striking to me. This actually, this verse actually had the most personal impact upon me as I thought about it and meditated on it to prepare for the sermon. Because I remember um, about four years ago visiting Cambridge and visiting Tyndale House specifically and being so struck by one of the faculty of Cambridge's Divinity School to come by and serve me tea and cookies because um, it may not be obvious to some of us in the room, but a University of Nevada degree is not particularly impressive at Cambridge. And so, you know, I wasn't able to flash my credentials and wow everyone. Um, no, it was, it was quite honoring to do that, and it was quite humbling, and it was wonderful to receive from a godly man of such high standing to actually receive tea and cookies. I was very moved by the expression. And in this case, Boaz serves, hands, Ruth, food. And he gives her even more than she can possibly eat. A continuing abundance. However, I think that the two passages, these two last passages of our text this morning are actually extremely key because it connects to what we read from the lips of Jesus. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her, and also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it to her to glean, and do not rebuke her. We see here again, Boaz reinforces his command to leave her alone. He's serious about this. Nobody is to touch Ruth. However, at this point, I think that we need to remind ourselves at least one of the passages about gleaning. Uh, and, you know, we get to read this out of uh, everybody's favorite book, Deuteronomy, which um, strangely is one of my favorite books. But I know for most people, it's quite um, difficult. So, from Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22, it says this, When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work, works of your hands. And when you beat the olive trees, you shall not go over them again, it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you're, you're, you gather grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and therefore I command you to do this. What we see Boaz doing in this passage, and not in the Deuteronomy passage, but in the, our passage this morning, is above and beyond what the law requires. The law, if you will, is a floor. I don't think anybody would be as foolish to say, hey, um, 
I don't commit adultery, so therefore I'm a good spouse, I'm a good husband, I'm a good wife. Uh, because we know that that is kind of the floor of being a good spouse is not committing adultery. It's not the very essence of being a good spouse. And in the same way, the law is a minimum. It's, a, it's indeed an obligation, but it's a minimum. And what Boaz does here is he goes beyond that minimum. He does not just uh, let Ruth glean. He, so he doesn't just, you know, whatever's left behind in the harvest, let her pick that up, but he puts her among her, the women who are harvesting, his servants. And he doesn't just do that. This is actually what's fascinating, is he actually tells them, yeah, take things out of the own sheaf and have her, for her to pick up. So in a sense, he's purposely forgetting the wheat, the, the grains that they're harvesting. He's purposely forgetting it. So he's taking that, well, huh, if I forget a sheaf, then, you know, I should just leave it there for whoever needs it. And he's saying, oh, I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to actually just give her out of the abundance of my own sheaves. So I don't even have to forget it. And so what we see here is that Boaz is actually living out the very heart of the law. And I think it's also instructive, it's in fact elucidating to see what he doesn't do. On the flip side, not just his exceeding the law, but what he, what he doesn't do. And this is often very helpful. Um, you know, is kind of a weird remark. A lot of people bring up that, you know, a lot of these dictators that we meet in history, you know, had certain kind of wonderful, I hate to say wonderful about a dictator, but they had, there was certain things that they held in high regard that we say, oh, wow, that, that's actually good. You know, supposedly um, the Nazis were against smoking. And I think we all commend that as being a good thing. And, and, and um, so, but it's also what they didn't do that matters. So if we just spoke, focused on their anti-smoking campaign, um, we might think that they're good chaps, but really uh, they're not. So what you see that someone doesn't do actually matters a lot. And so in this case with uh, Boaz, we see here that he doesn't treat Ruth with contempt. He treats her as an equal. He doesn't treat her as a charity case. He treats her as someone made in the image of God. He doesn't make her earn her keep, or as my Appalachian uncle was fond of saying to me, why don't you make yourself useful? And most notably, and most notably because of not only that time, but our current time, he does not take advantage of her vulnerability as a defenseless woman. And the reason why I point out our own time, I've recently ran across articles about aid workers in Africa associated with the UN and other humanitarian organizations that have been exposed of taking advantage of women and children sexually. And so this is not a problem for back then. This is not a problem that we just think about in the ancient world. This was this is a problem today of men taking advantage of their position against vulnerable women. And we see that Boaz 
doesn't do this in this case and doesn't do it as the book of Ruth progresses. And so in the very essence, when we come back to our main question, you know, what is the good life? I think Boaz provides that for us. And we could say, um, we can ask, well, what, as Bo- but what is Boaz for? What, <laughs> if what I mean by that is, why is he in the Bible? Why is he in the text? Like, why does God give us Boaz to look at? You know, this is something, this goes back to the heart of the question, but we could give several answers to it, which they would all be equally true and right, that he is, Boaz is for the, to be the protector and provider of Ruth and Naomi. He's to be the father of Obed, to be the redeemer of, the, of Elimelech's name, to be the man who restores the messianic line. These are all very true and right answers. But when we ask this question, what is Boaz for? Why is he in the Bible? Why does God give us this man to look at? I believe there's at least two other reasons why Boaz is. And I like just asking, why is Bo- what is Boaz for? Well, Boaz first provides us a picture of a life worth living or the good life. And as I started out in the beginning, I said, the book invites us to look at it. The book of Ruth begins with during the times of the judges and invites us to do that comparison or comparison between that book and the book, the people that we find in the book of Ruth. Who do you want to be like? Who is attractive? It's definitely not the people that we find in Judges for the most part, but it is Ruth and Boaz. And what this points us to is part and parcel of that question of what is the good life or what is a meaningful life, what is a life that is worth living, is actually partly tied to being a moral person. Now, this is not a sermon on being a moral person, but I would be negligent if I did not point this out. Part of the very warp warp and woof of the question assumes that there's right decisions and wrong decisions to make, good actions and bad actions. And so we can be reminded of the scripture, he has told you, O man, what is good, And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Micah 6.8. And so when we come to Boaz, we come to actually someone who makes good choices, makes right choices, makes ones that are impactful, that he's living out the very heart of the law. Except this is not moralism. And, And... And it takes us to one question deeper. When we come across Boaz, or when we come across Ruth, we say, I want to be like that. But when we come across the Pharisees, we don't want to be like that. Externally, both are following the law and following it precisely, but there is a qualitative difference between the two. And we know this in our own personal lives. I'm sure that we know we've ran across people who are 
what we would call pharisaical or legalistic, and they actually seem to be quite cruel and mean. And that is, the difference really is that it's not merely following the rules, it is actually receiving the kindness from God. First John tells us that we love because he first loved us. And so it's reflecting his love and character back. And that's what we see in Boaz. And so when it just becomes moralism or just following the law for the law's sake, that becomes the person's God. But when it becomes about knowing God and reflecting his heart, receiving his kindness and reflecting that back, that's what breathes fire and life into that law because we actually understand the heart of it because we've actually come to know the person who is the very author of the law and by him showing us kindness we reflect that kindness back second purpose of Boaz and the question of what Boaz is for is Boaz is a type of Aslan and so Boaz, um, you know, I could use the theological terminology, Boaz is a type and anti-type and all this stuff, but I'd rather say that he's a, a form of Aslan, he's a type of Aslan, meaning that, um, meaning that he points us to Christ. So if we remember from the Chronicles of Narnia books by C.S. Lewis, there's the lion Aslan, who is the Christ figure in these books, and he's a beautiful figure. He's actually one of my favorite uh, literature figures, and maybe that just speaks to the poverty of how deep my literary knowledge goes, and for completely different reasons. I think Gollum is a wonderful character in Tolkien. Um, but what, what C.S. Lewis framed Aslan as, why he wrote Aslan, was that children may fall in love with Aslan, to be delighted to know that Aslan was actually real, is actually real, in the very person of Christ. And so it was to lead children to Christ. And so Boaz, in the same way, points us to the ultimate good, the word made incarnate, love made incarnate for us. And so he points us to Christ that there's something greater, that whatever... Boaz is reflecting, he's reflecting the heart of God, but wait until the very heart of God is incarnate, and wait until God himself becomes incarnate in the person of Christ. And we see not just one Boaz in the New Testament that comes in contact with Christ. We see many Boazes. We see a multiplication of Boazes, if you will, and a multiplication that's beginning today because I actually, what I was thinking about is Zacchaeus is one of those figures that I've absolutely loved. One of the first people I loved in scripture was Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus comes to know Christ and restores all the, he restores more than what the law demanded for defrauding people. And it wasn't because Christ guilted him and said, well, you know, you defrauded a lot of people, Zacchaeus you should probably uh, look at the law. No, Zacchaeus came to know God, came to know Jesus. 
and out of that abundance of love reflected the love that he received in exceeding what the law demanded. I think about the woman who washes the feet of Jesus with her tears. She did it out of love and abundance, not obligation. She came to meet the very love incarnate and she received it and reflected it back to him. And we hear her story to this day. We think of Paul who suffered the loss of all things because of the surpassed worth of knowing Christ. So I think at this point, we see the multiplication. I've met Boaz's, I've met Ruth's, and I'm sure you have as well. And I've been often disappointed, not in them, but the people that I've held in high esteem and high regard, thinking that they would be something to be disappointed, and the people I have thought to be nothing have been some of the most beautiful people I've met because they have reflected the heart of Christ. They have been a Boaz and a Ruth. And so my question that I'll bring up, uh, the, the one that I'm going to pose, is so what if we fail to obey? What if we fail to live the good life? What if we fail to show the unceasing kindness? Have we, have we lost our ability to live the good life? The short answer is no, because it never depended on you to begin with. You did not have life to begin with. We are only reflecting God's unceasing kindness. So if we fail, we simply confess our sins, for he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever thought about that Jesus actually cleanses us from our unrighteousness? He doesn't just forgive us our sins. He washes us clean. It's an amazing picture to me because even living my fairy, fairly Pollyannish life, growing up in a Christian home, going to the University of Nevada, not far from home, and um, being a Christian a great portion of my adult life, I've done enough wrong to realize that that I need to be washed, and I want to be washed. I want things to be rid of in me, and I wish God would take them out even sooner than he is, but for his reasons, he works in the ways he does. And lastly, because it doesn't depend on us, so and when we fail, we go to confess our sins, we, we turn back, Christ. We reorient ourselves. We return just as Ruth returned to Jerusalem, and we behold the glory of our Lord that we may be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So, in short, if we fail to show the unceasing kindness that God has given us, and we fail to be a Boaz or a Ruth, we have a God waiting and ready to restore us 
and to turn us back on the right path once more and then again and again. Amen. Let us pray. Father, Lord, thank you for your unceasing kindness for, to us. Lord, may we be carriers of your light. May we reflect your kindness. May we reflect your justice. May we reflect your beauty. And Lord, I pray that you would be changing us from the very inside out, even in the small bits that we cannot see, that we may be beautiful and kind people like your son in whom